Slow Burn Media and Evergreen Podcast presents Who Killed, a podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless. The Untouchables. A Desilu production. Tonight's episode, The Frank Mithy Story. Starring Robert Stack as Elliot Ness. Co-starring Richard Anderson, Myron McCormick, and Dick Foran, with special guest star Bruce Gordon, and narrated by Walter Winchell. In 1934, Prohibition had been repealed, and the Capone mob, without its leader, serving time at Alcatraz prison, was desperate for new sources of revenue. With the instinct of jackals for an easy kill, they picked the nation's small theater owners for their prey. The type of operation used was one they knew best, extortion. On a quiet street in Oak Park, Illinois, suburb of Chicago, Harold Coleman was closing his theater. Coleman was the owner and operator of two small motion picture houses. He thought he hadn't an enemy in the world, but he was soon to learn that he was mistaken. To put their extortion plan into operation, the Capone mob had chosen Frank Nitti, longtime enforcer for Scarface Al Capone. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Who Killed? I'm your host, Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media, Evergreen Podcasts, and Killer Podcast production. On this week's episode, we're going to take a look back at a case that we have covered, and I actually had a special guest on to discuss the case, and that was one Jim Harold, the king of podcasting, and he was on to discuss the torso killings. And now the torso killings are connected to Elliot Ness in the sense that Elliot Ness was the public safety director for the city of Cleveland during the time of the killings. Now, Elliot Ness is famous because of the Al Capone days and the Untouchables while he was a prohibition officer. And he was so famous that they made a show about him. It actually starred Robert Stack, who would go on to be every true crime junkie's favorite host of unsolved mysteries and that was like a whole second career for him but he was like a big time tv star in the 50s and the untouchables was one of the highest rated shows in the country so elliot ness was considered like a wonderkind and he had taken down al capone although it was not his actual case that did bring in scarface it was the taxes and the IRS that actually put him behind bars. So we all understand that. I think everybody who knows the story of Al Capone knows that he went to jail for tax evasion and not for racketeering, which is what the case he was building against uh, Capone in in Chicago. And that is that he was basically guilty of 5,000 plus prohibition Laws. Now, they didn't go ahead and prosecute that case for whatever reason, but they figured the taxes were a slam dunk, and that's what basically put him away and put him in Alcatraz, of all places. So, we know the story of that aspect of Elliot Ness's life. Now, when he lost his sort of thunder, he stepped on a few toes and got relocated to a couple different cities he actually ended up going to kentucky where he worked as you know i mean busting moonshine people and uh 
stills inside the you know the mountains and it was Appalachia and it was hard work and it was a lot different than tracking people down in Chicago so that was interesting but he did eventually get back in the good graces of his bosses and he would end up working in Cleveland and he became the Cleveland safety director in the 30s and then the torso killings became a headline in almost every newspaper in the city and I'm not sure if it took off nationally but it definitely did when there was the Great Lakes Exposition and there were a lot of people from out of town that would see headlines of bodies being found in Lake Erie, bodies being found in the Cuyahoga River and it was not necessarily the best look for the city, nor it was a good look for Elliot Ness. And in this episode, we talk about some of the impacts that this case had on Ness's career. And it's interesting. There's a lot of cool connections to Elliot Ness and some of the work I've done. He actually lived in Bay Village, which is where Amy Mahalovic was abducted. And he also lived in a house right across from a uh, sailing club that we all uh, participated in when we were kids. So uh, pretty neat and pretty cool stuff and uh, very historical. So let's welcome Jim Harold into the Who Killed studio and hear what he has to say about the torso killings. He is a little bit older than I am and has a little bit more knowledge on the case. So let's let him join us and I uh, hope you guys enjoy this show. And please do check out the book, Elliot Ness and the Mad Butcher. Again, that's by uh, Max Allen Collins and Brad Schwartz. So if you like to devil in the white city, you most likely would enjoy this book. So check it out. And again, this is Jim Harold. And you can find him wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Enjoy. I am absolutely lucky enough to be joined this week by one of the original podcasters in all of podcasting with 30 plus million downloads. Uh, Jim Harold joins me today. Thanks for joining me, Jim. Oh, I'm glad to be here, Bill. Thank you so much for the opportunity to speak with you and your audience about podcasting and true crime. And uh, again, pleasure to be with you today. And so what cases are you the most passionate about? I mean, I know that you got into this uh, genre, well, not the genre so much, but the medium of podcasting early on. So what was it that captured your interest? Well, in podcasting in general, uh, I had been a broadcasting student. I'd gone to school for broadcasting, ended up working in radio, but on the advertising side. Okay. And my whole plan had been to be in TV or radio in front of the mic or, or as a producer or someone on the content side, but I ended up in the advertising side. And I've always been a big fan of talk radio and things. In 2005, I heard about this thing called podcasting. And I listened to people like the really OG, <laughs> OG <laughs> podcasters like Adam Curry, who co-invented the medium with Dave Weiner and Leo Laporte. And I said, oh, man, I can't do that. Those guys are fantastic. And then I listened to some of the homemade podcasts that were coming out in 05. And I'm like, mm -hmm. I can do that. And started uh, on the paranormal uh, in 05, uh, launched a series of different uh, shows over the years. I actually launched my first, uh, uh, well, 
my only true crime podcast, Jim Harold's Crime Scene, back in 2011, actually is a premium show. Later, a few years later, took that free. But um, that's what got me into the medium of podcasting. And it's been an absolute life changer for me. And I've been doing it full time for seven years now. Now, on the, the true crime piece, I mean, I think I've always been interested. It's kind of, I never thought about this, but the same thing that got me interested in true crime got me interested in the paranormal. When I was a kid, I'm 50 now. I'm one of the old guys. Okay. But when I was a real little kid in elementary school, there was a show on TV called In Search Of with Leonard Nimoy. Uh, and yeah. that got me into the paranormal. And I, you know, I, it's not one of these things where I said, well, what can I make money at? When I started podcasting, it's like, I'm really interested in the paranormal. But also I realized, and I didn't really think about this until we communicated on this. The, it also spurred my interest in true crime. They did a very uh, famous episode on Jack the Ripper, which is a case that I think still fascinates most true crime aficionados to this day. And I think that got me very interested in the subject of true crime. And also, and as I shared with you offline, uh, I live in suburban Cleveland now, but I grew up in uh, the southeast side of Cleveland. Uh, around the 55th and Broadway area. And it just so happens one of the greatest unsolved cases in American history uh, had a definite connection to that area, and that's the Cleveland Torso Murders. So, you know, I think kind of those two cases informed my interest in the uh, the area of true crime, which, uh, you know, overlaps my uh, interest in the paranormal, because honestly, you think sometimes, are there, is it, are we dealing with people that just have mental illness or is there a element of evil involved? Now, I've asked that question of some pretty serious people and some pretty serious people say, yeah, I think there might be an element of evil. That's so that's an interesting that, perspective that, for sure. Yeah, that's, uh, I'm not saying that, uh, you know, that that crime is necessarily paranormal. I'm not saying that at all. Mm-hmm. But that thing is when we're talking about these very, very dark, dark, violent crimes and serial killers, is there uh, is it simply mental illness, uh, people who are disturbed or maybe had uh, rough childhoods and horrible things were uh, laid at their door and they, they were victimized? Is it simply things like that? Or is there also maybe some element of evil? I don't, I don't, I don't know the answer and I don't know that anybody does know the answer. Yeah, that's a good point. And, you know, putting that spin on it, it definitely does make you wonder with these larger cases like Jack the Ripper and the torso killings, you know, is there something more at work than just mental illness or, you know, is it, is, is it evil? Um, I mean, obviously it's evil, but is there something more that's driving it now? I don't want to, I, I, real quickly, I don't want to poo poo the notion of mental illness. That is oh, definitely gosh, no. something no. that exists. There's no question. And, and some things are done just by people who are totally insane. There's no question about that. But I, in some cases, I do wonder if there's an element of evil uh, per se, but go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, no, I, I absolutely. I, I agree. I think that there is, you know, we're not downplaying the importance of mental health. Uh, I'm a big advocate for all that good, all that stuff. So, you know, the torso killings and the, and Jack the Ripper, it's funny because they do kind of have a correlation to them. And wasn't there, I mean, there was some talk that they might be connected at some point. Yeah, I believe of, that some people believe that. I don't necessarily believe that. But Yeah, it's a, it's a far-fetched theory because there would yeah. be such a stretch, you know, such a difference in... Um, the amount of years, but 
the similarities. And the similarities that here's another odd similarity. And I I just thought about this. Remember that the Ripper taunted the authorities. Well, the torso murderer uh, taunted Elliot Ness and and said, you know, you can't catch me. And that was another thing that people don't realize people outside the Cleveland area that Elliot Ness was the safety director here and ran for mayor. And this was like the one that got away, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the torso murder, never having been able to, to nail him down. And I'm assuming it was a him. Uh, but I think that's probably a pretty good assumption. I remember as a kid, actually, and I was probably 12 or 13 years old, driving by the central area in Cleveland and seeing that building with the, the you know how they used to paint billboards on the sides of old mm-hmm. buildings, you know, and sure. you would sometimes, sometimes they would like tear down one building and the bin right next to it. And then the, the billboard was like uh, pristine from like 1920 or something. Well, in this case, uh, it was quite faded at the time. And you can find pictures of this online. I believe it was in the central neighborhood, there was actually an Elliot Ness for Mayor billboard painted on one of those buildings, which I think has since been torn down. But that was wild to go there, you know, uh, past there like in the 80s and see, oh my gosh, Elliot Ness for Mayor. How wild is that? So I also think that plays into the question of history with true crime. I am very drawn to older cases and interested in, we even talk about things like the Black Dahlia case. Uh, historical cases have always fascinated me, and I think that ties in with my uh, interest in history, which oddly enough ties back into the paranormal because I think that's a big part of famous paranormal cases, the history of a place. So it all kind of ties together if you, you look at the threads. Yeah, if you uh, if you do Google that Elliot Ness for Mayor building, it comes up like first thing. It's an eye opener because people always associate him with Al Capone and you know right. the you know Untouchables and and he had this whole second life that well I mean it was completely the opposite as far as success goes here in Cleveland. I mean it was the yeah. safety director and then he basically you know, wasn't able to be elected mayor because he couldn't catch the torso killer. Yeah, yeah. And uh, there, I think there was some controversy about a car accident too with him. And, yeah, yeah, right. um, and if I remember correctly, he helped write the Untouchables book that the TV series was based on, but I don't think he got to see the full success of that book, which ironically, uh, Untouchables, Elliot Ness was played by Robert Stack, who went on to host another great show that was a great uh, influence on me, Unsolved Mysteries. So it is odd if, when you look at the connections, how it all ties together. Yeah, it's sort of the, uh, you know, the, Kev- the old Kevin Bacon uh, six degrees yeah, of separation. Exactly, exactly. I was just looking at the, uh, I was like, why is Robert Stack popped up here? Because <laughs> that's like one of the things that's in, you know, I just Google imaged it and it's like the fourth name there. It says Robert yeah. Stack. And I'm like, what? Yeah, yeah. That's ah. the thing younger people forget that uh, Stack played uh, Elliot Ness. Of course, that show was focused on his time in Chicago and his success with uh, running out uh, Capone and the bootleggers and, and all that stuff. So that was a far more kind yeah. of um, a positive uh, stage of uh, Ness's career. Yeah. What about the torso killings, though? Like, what was the, uh, what was the background as far as what? actually occurred well basically um there's some people who think that there may have been 13 or more victims in the cleveland youngstown and pittsburgh areas 
And I'm actually, I have to be honest, I'm looking at Wikipedia to, to, to refresh some of my memory on this. Totally um, but, um, and there's a great guy in Cleveland who has done a lot of work on this, James Badal, but I don't know his status now. I interviewed him a couple of years ago. But the thing is, is that this happened in an area called Kingsbury Run. Mm-hmm. Now, the odd thing is, is that some books I have read have posited that it was, uh, whoever was doing this was uh, possibly a doctor possibly operating out of that Broadway area I told you about. And here's two really freaky things for me personally. One is uh, there's a theory that the person who committed these torso murders, and they're called torso murders because the people were decapitated, their hands, their feet were cut off. So there'd just be a torso left. Uh, really. Were they surgically? The thought is, is that it was done very surgically, yes. Okay. So, so um, anyhow, uh, the point being, that the doctor who some theorized did it uh, was involved, worked at St. Alexis Hospital. Now, St. Alexis Hospital has, which no longer exists, I think there is a velodrome there. They, they race bicycles. But up until the 90s, I think it was early 2000s, there was a hospital there, a hospital that I was born in. No kidding. <laughs> wow. Oh, now, now, I think that the building that uh, I was born in was a different building. I think they okay. tore down the old one. But, but still, on that piece of ground, I was born there and possibly the torso murderer like operated out of there. And, and then there's also a funeral home in the area, which I don't know if it's still a funeral home, but it was there when I lived. Uh, you know, I lived in that area from the, you know, I was born in 69, from 69 up until 93. And there was a, um, a funeral home there, which I think changed hands before I was born. But I actually went to funerals there. And supposedly, there's some thoughts, if it's the one I'm thinking about, that, um, that possibly the, um, the killer actually uh, worked at one of their facilities or used one of their facilities to do his dirty work. Now, I'm not saying that's the case, but that's one of the theories. So the thing is, I'm like walking around here, you know, in my teenage years and so forth in areas like, oh, the torso murderer was right there. It's like, it's just crazy to me. So I think that resonates with me personally, just knowing the places and where all this happened. They talk about one place called Jackass Hill. And my uh, my uncle all the time talked about Jackass Hill. And uh, and that's, that's uh, in Kingsbury Run over there. So it's really weird to know that you live lived in this place. And it was a very depressed area. I mean, it was less so when I was growing up uh, and it's become a very, very depressed area now. But just to know you lived like where all this happened, it's just crazy. It's seen better days as far as the area goes. But I mean, man, that uh, the fact that they still don't, I mean, I'm looking at Wikipedia too, and they, you know, they've got 12 to 20 victims possibly. And it's just like, I mean, it's one of those things that in that neighborhood, I just think that there probably wasn't as much of a concern about catching somebody who may be committing these crimes. I mean, even if, even though it was a huge story. I think it was, I think you were dealing with the people that were being killed were uh, like hobos in in Mm -hmm. the November phrase. I'm sure that's not the politically correct phrase now, but at the time they were considered hobos, vagrants, you know, not necessarily, you know, the upper crust of society. And we see the same thing today, right? If you have someone who is killed in the inner city of any major American city, it's kind of a footnote. And then if you get somebody who's killed in the suburbs, it's headlines. We see the same thing now. It still goes on, unfortunately. I definitely understand how that works. I mean, you have a murder in the suburbs and it's like front page news. You have a murder in the 
greater Cleveland area. And it's just another, if it even makes the paper, you know, it's just, yeah. it's uh, like on page five B, you know, or if there even is a five B anymore. I was just going to say kind of, kind of uh, passe at this point, but you don't, you don't hear a lot about it is the basis. And that's been something, and I don't know what the answer is to it. I just think about, um, I think we just came on the anniversary here of the uh, Sowell killings. And I can't remember mm-hmm. how many women, it was something like 10 women. And certainly that was uh, publicized, but my goodness, had that been in the suburbs? Oh my gosh, you would have never gotten away from it. And, you know, I saw an item on the news, I think it was like a 10-year anniversary or something, uh, and it's a horrible, horrible situation. And I think there's some thought that many of those women were uh, in prostitution. But the, the, the point being that uh, their lives are just as valuable as anybody else's. And just for it to be kind of you know, swept under the rug, in a manner of speaking, it's kind of sad. Unfortunately, what it boils down to sometimes, too, is having the people that carry the torch or carry the flag for that victim, because sometimes it's, if those people are in prostitution, they are disconnected from the rest of society. And unfortunately, there isn't always an advocate for them. And that's not fair. They're Like you said, they're just like any anybody else, and they should be treated the same way. And finding anybody's killer is, should be priority number one, no matter who or what, or Correct. how they died. Exactly right. I agree 110%. So as far as uh, the torso killings, I see that they uh, they think that he may have c- killed later than the last victim in 38. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it goes up to the 50s in, in, in some other markets because it was interesting. A lot of this was, um, that area had a lot of railroad tracks and things. So a lot of people think that maybe whoever this was traveled by 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 train. Of course, there's always the possibility of copycats, right? right Somebody right. reads about this and who knows, maybe the torso murderer himself had read accounts of Jack the Ripper. And maybe that inspired him, for example, to write those letters to Ness. So you can't discount that, particularly in that particular time, because now, you know, with all of the, the crime scene evidence that can be gleaned and, and used, if you think about it, it's one of those situations where they, they can kind of tell if it's a copycat because they they can look at things very, but we're talking about years ago, and this really is the very, very early years of criminology, mm-hmm. and I don't think they were nearly sophisticated. I know they weren't nearly sophisticated, and I think that um, copycat killers could be more easily uh, lumped into the the main suspect, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, I agree with that. And I especially think with the tracks being right there, there's definitely, you know, with all the victims being, or not all the victims, but the majority of the victims not being identified. I think that has to do with the fact that, yeah, they're not hobos. They rode the trains. And so they could be from any state across the country. So if they're making a stop in Cleveland and they just so happen to run into the wrong guy or somebody's stalking that particular train area, I think that's just like prime picking is terrible way of saying it, but you're just basically having victims driven to your doorstep. Yeah. And the thing was, is that there's some thought that, and I'm not going to mention any names here, but some of the main suspects in the torso murders had political connections and that uh, those were kind of brought to the the fore and kind of protected certain people from being outed. Uh, I believe the case, if I'm not 
mistaken, there was one gentleman who was put into uh, a facility and uh, after he was put into that facility, the murder stopped. <laughs> yeah, so I've, heard, I've heard about that. And I think, and I've also heard, you know, the rumor being, and I'm not going to say names, but I did hear that Ness had made a deal with somebody. He kind of made a deal with the devil because he lost the election and in order to stop the killings. From what I know, it sounds like there's a very good possibility that that was the person that was committing the crimes. Right. And you know that Nell Elliot Ness wanted to climb the political ladder if he saw an opportunity to do so, but it, it may have backfired. Right. Now the other thing the other thing here is is that yet another kind of corollary to the Jack the Ripper case. I would say that the Cleveland Torso murders are kind of like the American Jack the Ripper. And I'm not the first person who's made that comparison, by the way. Uh, yeah. I think many people have. There was also a thought that, for example, Jack the Ripper may have been, uh, I believe, a duke, if I'm not mistaken, or something like that, uh, or a member of, uh, you know, the upper crust. And that was covered up on that side of the pond, as it were. Don't know if that's true, obviously. I don't know if we'll ever find out who either one of these people were because they're the coldest of cold cases, right? I mean, if there were any DNA evidence, uh, it's probably so contaminated at this point. I think that Patricia Cornwell, uh, Cornwell right? Uh, she mm -hmm. tried to launch her own investigation uh, into um, Jack the Ripper, and she thought it was the artist Walter Sickert um, because uh, Sickert, uh, I believe, had some mental issues. I'm not sure. But he did uh, do a painting. She had a painting that uh, she showed in her research that looked very much like one of the crime scenes. Um, yeah, so, yeah. So, but I think other people have come back and said, no, it couldn't have been sickered for thus and so reason. So I just wonder, are we ever going to get to the bottom of these cases, Bill, because they're so old? obviously nobody's left to talk to, uh, none of the witnesses, and uh, any kind of forensic uh, evidence has probably been so gone over and so reviewed and also probably so contaminated. I know there were DNA efforts for a stamp from Jack the Ripper, which I, I don't know what the result of that was. But to me, it's just like it's going to be one of both of those are going to be eternal mysteries. I do believe that they're going to be mysteries, and I think that's why they are kind of the you know, when you think about true crime or you think about serial killings, you first think of Jack the Ripper, then you maybe think Zodiac, torso killings, maybe just because of the fact, but we're from Cleveland, so it's more relevant to us. Right. Again, like if it was a different type of, if it was a suburban crime, it would be so much more known. But I know that there was talk back in the 2000s that, you know, I think Fincher and Matt Damon were attached to, a, you know, the Torso movie that was going to be filmed and they were going to film it in Detroit, but nothing ever came out of that. But I'm glad they didn't film it in Detroit just because it needs to be filmed in Cleveland if they're going to film it anywhere. <laughs> I hate yeah. it when they do that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They just did um... To Kill the Irishman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They did that. And I interviewed the the author of that and he was great, uh, Palillo, Rick Palillo. But um, yeah, they did it. I think they did that in Detroit too, which I understand. I mean, it kind of looks similar. The inner city looks similar. Actually, that, that what they were showing here looked very similar to the area I grew up. So, I mean, but still, you'd like to have it shot in Cleveland. It, it would be nice. Yeah, and I remember we didn't have the tax credits, so that, I think that was the reason back then. And, you know, they're always looking to save money, especially on those like, oh, yeah. independent yeah, they're gonna films. Go, they're going to go where they can they can get it the cheapest, I'm but sure. But it's like I drive by that place where Danny Green was killed like every other week. And it's just yeah. like in the movie, he's, he's killed in like the downtown area. And I'm just like, oh, it's just not how it happened. It's not <laughs> 
No, I occasionally would drive past there with my kids and we would make a joke of it because every time we drive back by there, I'm like, that's where they blew up a guy named Danny Green. And it is kind of chilling. And I've gone into that office before. I actually had an appointment one time in that office. I got to tell you, it felt a little funny coming out and coming back and starting your car. You know, it's like, yeah, you know, it was like 1976 or whatever it was. But, uh, and if folks don't know what we're talking about, uh, Danny Green, of course, a uh, uh, famous uh, person with mob ties, supposedly, here in the Cleveland area, who was basically, was that when Cleveland, for a short time, was known as Bomb City, USA? Yeah, that's actually a good opportunity for me to give a quick plug, because that's going to be one of my, I'm doing a, you might want to be interviewed, if you want to be on it, I'm doing a Bomb City, USA podcast, just like that's a great. six that's- to eight episode series on that whole story, because it's just so unique, and it's, it's sort of like what we're talking about with the torso killings and how sometimes these regional cases, they can just be forgotten nationally because Cleveland's not Chicago and it's not New York City and and yeah, we were a big city back then, but now we're just, you know, we're, I don't know, I think 20th in the you know market as far as media goes. So back then we were a top five city and I just think some of these killings and some of these like the Sowell case. I mean, you want to talk about the opportunities they missed there. I mean, they blamed it on the sausage plant that's like a block away. Yeah, it's horrible. I mean, like, oh yeah, that terrible smell. Oh, that's just a sausage place. Well, I work for News 5. I mean, how many killings have we had in this past month of just people being killed in these abandoned homes. I mean, if we could just get rid of those, we could be, oh, that's a whole nother, that's a, that's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> in, indeed. Well, the thing is, is that I got to tell you, Bill, it, it is interesting. And um, the thing about, uh, you know, my, and, and I didn't have any knowledge of anything, but, uh, uh, you know, very familiar with the, I live on the east side of Cleveland, mm-hmm. but, Eastern suburbs. So, I mean, <laughs> I've driven through Little Italy quite a few times. You know, that's our Italian area and it's a great little district and it's got great restaurants and things. But you kind of think if you go back to those days and, you know, yeah, to a lot of people, the 70s are ancient history, but it's not that long ago. No. And, uh, and uh, you know, when you see some of the last names, it's like I've seen some last names mentioned. It's like, oh, I knew somebody with that last name. Are they? <laughs> I don't even want to I don't even want to talk about that because I have yeah. such a close tie to one that I'm like that I know was. You know, I'm not going to say much more because I just I know there's just I'll say out say it offline. But yeah, there was a lot of <laughs> a little too many similarities, and it's like, oh, did reason, I know somebody who knew somebody? Oh, that's scary. Yeah, and there's a reason why my parents they really didn't want me to go over there. I kind of get it now. It's one of those things that I didn't realize at the time, but you'd be enjoying a plate of uh, pasta and get whacked. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, it reminds me. I was it, uh, and this is now we're really going offline here. But uh, if you remember from the, uh, I don't know if it was in the '80s or when it was exactly, but it was uh, in New York. The one mobster, and he was a top line monster mobster. He came up very high, thinking he was killed in a restaurant. Oh, was that Paul? Um, is it was that the one that got yeah. yeah, yeah, I think so. I think yeah. so. I forget his last name. Yeah, I that's the Castellano. Was it Castellano? Yeah, Paul Cast Paul Castellano. Uh, but <laughs> but anyway, just envisioning that, and you could see something like that. Probably, you know, I to my knowledge, nothing like that ever happened in Little Italy. But uh, you could see some of that, like that, have happening there. You know, back in the day. 
I used to work with this one guy. He talked about how in the 70s when, you know, they would be playing outside, they would hear explosions. Like it was, <laughs> because, I mean, you know, again, they got the moniker Bomb City USA because somebody from Time Magazine gave them that name. Because we had 36 car bombings, or 30, it wasn't car bombings, but 36 different bombings in one year. You think about that today, I mean, holy crap. Like, now granted, these weren't bombs that were trying to kill people all the time, but they did kill people. Yeah, it, it's amazing to think in your own hometown this was going on not that long ago. Not that long ago. And you you look at the old pictures and you look at like, and even though To Kill the Irishman was filmed and it, it's worth watching because of the fact that Val Kilmer does a good job playing the the cop and talking about the theatrical and, you know, that, that whole restaurant. And you just think of the old days in the 70s and the, I don't know, the grit and the grime of Cleveland. and Yeah, you know. it was a pretty intense place. I remember the area where I grew up, I, uh, I had uh, one, of, one of my instructors drove me uh, home one night. I needed a ride. And he came back in the, the next week and he said, you know, everybody here thinks Jim is like uh, Joe Suburban. He lives in Hell's Kitchen. Because <laughs> you could see the smokestacks, the BOFs from, at that time, LTV Steel, uh, and the fire belching into the air. And it did look kind of spooky. Oh yeah, I mean, you look at the pictures. It's just like, is I can't tell if it's like if it's sepia or is that smog? <laughs> like probably smog. There was a famous Cleveland uh, journalist who just recently passed in the last year or so, uh, who uh, Dick Fegler, and oh. he used to write a column uh, first and the Plain Dealer. Oh, it was fantastic, and he used to joke about his. Uh, I don't know. He had different characters he would write about, and I think there were like composite characters, mm-hmm. and he would write about. Uh, Aunt Millie or whoever it was hanging up her sheets uh, in the in that area there, and when she'd take them down from the line, they were orange. <laughs> and I, you know, it's funny, but it's there, not. <laughs> I got to tell you, when I was a kid in the seventies, even the eighties, you would drive down seventy-seven, and then when let's say you would go down to Akron or something, mm-hmm. and then you would drive back. When you hit a certain level, it was past Independence, mm-hmm. and if you were driving up towards like Grant Avenue and that uh, on seventy-seven. You could tell when you were close because you would literally smell the steel mill. I mean, honestly, I, okay, so I was a kid during the 80s, like early 80s. Right. Um, so I I remember that smell like yep. vividly. I, yes. I don't even need to, it's like the smell of the old brown stadium. Yeah. <laughs> St- yeah. Stale beer and yes. drunk. Urine. <laughs> drunk urine and, and cigarette smoke, like people yeah. smoking in the oh, stadium. Yeah. Like, what the hell? <laughs> I mean, it was a tough place. I mean, yeah, as you were driving, if you were driving Driving down towards Akron, you'd see that big Goodyear sign that used to be there for decades. Oh, I hate when they took that down. Yeah, that's a a part of Cleveland that's uh, gone. And yeah, that was sad. But when you go back the other way, yeah, you get down to probably 71 Grand Avenue and you get that smell. It's like, uh, we're close to home. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of that like rusty. um, Oh, yeah. 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 Yeah, It was was definitely, there was a smell. Yeah, there was definitely a smell. So back to the torso killings. So do you think that, I mean, you didn't want to name any suspects, but do you believe that that story about Ness making a a deal or is that something that you kind of, you put as sort of a rumor slash that's sort of the, let's just kind of put a bow on it. Cause it does sort of seem like a nice way of wrapping up the story. And it kind of seems. I think that, well, let me say this is that I, you're probably familiar with the theory that I'm not familiar with because I had heard in general terms that may have been covered up because of a connection to a family. I did not hear this theory that 
Elliot Ness agreed to these things to, to further his career. I got to say, I mean, anytime you have power, there's corruption. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, but I can't speak to this specific deal. But do I think that, yeah, if they figured out, okay, this one person's doing and he's totally insane and uh, we'll lock him away so he can't hurt anybody, but we'll keep it, uh, we'll keep it quiet. Could I see that happening in the 1930s? Absolutely. Yeah. And I, honestly, I wasn't like, I was more speculating on that. I just know that the, the rumor that I heard is that he had kind of made a deal, but I was just speculating on the fact that it could be something that would potentially bolster his future political standing opposed to being something that would damage his career. Because you wouldn't think that somebody who's running for mayor would put himself in a position that's going to screw himself. I mean, he probably thought it was he was doing something if he did do that that he was doing something that would benefit him. That's That right. was where I was going with that. Yeah. Yeah, I got to believe that, honestly, if you, if you really think about it, that the, the chances of corruption are pretty high, I think. Um, that's not to say uh, Ness, you know, I mean, think about it. Even somebody could have come down on Ness and said, we're going to do it this way. We're going to handle it this way. I, I don't know. Because I, from what I understand, Ness had some integrity. So I, I don't know if he would have done that or not. Perhaps, you know, people will do things that they normally wouldn't do if, if power and the opportunity is uh, is presented with them. But I got to think if you are a, a law man or a law woman for that case, if you have this one big case, I got to believe that nagged at him his whole life not to have been able to catch this person. It's a kind of a good segue into what kind of life he had the rest of his life. And it wasn't very, it wasn't very pretty. I mean, he was an alcoholic. I think this was like, it's exactly what you said. It weighed on him for the rest of his life. I mean, yeah, he, and if you think about it he had these great successes uh-huh <laughs> then he had to deal with this and he probably you know it's kind of like to bring it back to football but if you think about uh like a player who has been great their whole career and then they're hit with uh with the adversity i mean this is a lot more serious stuff we're talking about life and death and criminals and killers and things. But, you know, when you have a lot of success and then you have adversity, it's interesting to see where some people can handle it and come back and and some people they can't. Yeah, I definitely feel that Ness would have been one of those people that if he did make that kind of deal, it would have hurt him like mentally. And back then, especially without knowing what mental health, all the ways that you can deal with mental health and stress, I think there are a lot of unhealthy ways back then to deal with it. And I think that he didn't choose the best ways to deal with whether it was his inability to catch the guy or he made the deal. I mean, I've heard rumors. Again, you hear things after so many years, but like you've said in the first segment of the show where you talk about how will we ever find an answer to these mysteries? because of the fact that they're so old, I think I think we'll find an answer if, and this is a big if, but let's say they're able to, the only way, this is my opinion, the, the Ness stuff comes out is if they find like old papers and old, you know, in some relatives, whatever, after they pass away, it's sort of like the post-deathbed confession type of thing where we won't get an answer because there just is nobody, like you said, to talk to. The witnesses are so long gone. The people that they would have shared the stories with aren't even of sound mind. Not necessarily. They're all 
that old. It's just, it's so old. The story is so old. I mean, we're talking 82 years ago. <laughs> yeah, it's a crazy amount of time. And uh, the thing is, is that in terms of Ness using this as political leverage, I mean, I don't think he ran for mayor until the late 40s. So I don't know. I don't know about that part of it. I mean, it may be, you, you may know something I don't, but I, I just wonder if that was because as I understand it, Capone's people wanted to bribe Ness and he turned it down. You know, maybe he didn't, uh, and, and there's some evidence, I guess, that he was in a car accident and alcohol may have been involved and he tried to, so I'm not saying he's a Boy Scout. I mean, I don't know about the political piece is all I'm saying. And then, and it's been so long ago, I mean, probably not many people li- alive know uh, unless it was documented and those kind of things. But you make a great point. I know that the Western Reserve Historical Society has a lot of Ness's papers and, um, you know, maybe something can be found. But uh, boy, I got to believe a lot of people uh, have looked at that. Uh, the foremost person on that, I believe, uh, is in the Cleveland area. Now, I don't know his current status. We talked a few years ago. I know he was older. It's James Badal. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's done more research on this probably than anybody living and wrote an excellent book on it. You know, that's if you're interested in the case, that's a great place to look at, look at his book. Uh, and I, I, I could probably look it up real quick here for folks and see what it is. But uh, he's uh, been a, a great author and a great researcher on this. Let's see. I will find the book for everybody. There's a couple of uh, a couple of books he's done, um, and I will find those momentarily. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. And then it's actually, you know, it's crazy. You look at his personal life, and and I mean, he he was married at a time when divorce wasn't very common. I mean, yeah, I think three times, right? three times, yeah, yeah, yeah. Badal's most recent book on it, and he's done uh, looks like a couple of books uh, on this. But uh, James Badal did in the wake of the butcher, Cleveland's torso murder and that was released in 2014 and very, very well done. Yeah, that's a good plug. I definitely, uh, definitely check that book out. I find this case so fascinating. It's just so, especially living in the area. And I'm just glad that we're able to talk about this case because I didn't know exactly which case you were going to choose this time. So the fact that we're able to kind of bring this case to a national platform and kind of say, this was America's Jack the Ripper. And this really was the first of, I mean, we had H.H. Holmes, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm not trying to like downplay the all that other stuff. But as far as the type of killings that occurred and the amount of killings, this is ridiculous. I mean, yeah. it, it's a story that should be more known than it is. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I thank you so much for, for bringing this story uh, back to the forefront. Do you have any final thoughts on what your uh, your feelings are on the cases that we've discussed? Well, um, the thing is, is that I think we, and then I think I fall victim to this as well, but you have to remember, even the case is 100 years old, whatever. I know that many of us enjoy delving into these cases and enjoy the mystery, but we should never lose a sight that there were real victims that real violence was visited upon. Whether they were ditch diggers, quote, hobos, ladies and men of the night, whatever they may have been, they were people, they didn't deserve to die this way, and we should never lose sight of the victims. I think that's really important. Certainly, we can look at the mystery and wonder who did it and and, and read the books and listen to the podcasts and all that, but never forget there are real people, the real consequences behind these stories. Yeah, I definitely think that's a great way to you know, highlight the fact that these people need to be recognized just the same as anybody else because they are living, breathing humans just like you and me. 
and there's nothing that makes them any different than than us and it it's unfair that they have to kind of sort of get pushed to the you know the side and you know we saw it with the so well case and you know how quickly that kind of went from being a story to just sort of back page news and you look at you know not to compare well I'm going to compare them I mean you look at the Amanda Berry and the Gina De Jesus I mean they're they're still around it's still a story that is always talked about and so well has kind of been pushed to the back burner because unfortunately we just don't have the advocates to get out there and be their cheerleaders and that's so unfortunate there needs to be a, a, more of a support system, I believe, for that type of uh, victim. I agree. And Bill, thank you so much for inviting me on the show today. It's been great to talk with people and uh, talk about these cases. And uh, uh, I appreciate your time today. Yeah, thank you so much. Again, I really do appreciate it. And I absolutely uh, look forward to talking with you again in the future. So uh, thanks so much again. Thank you, Bill. Let's hear it for Jim Harold for joining us in the Who Killed studio to discuss one of the most insane cases in the city of Cleveland. And again, even if you're not a Clevelander, this is a case that you should know about. It's very interesting. I may have mentioned in this episode, I do not recall, that it was originally going to be a Matt Damon movie where Matt Damon was going to portray Elliot Ness. And I don't believe that ever went off. I mean, clearly it didn't happen because we've never seen it, but would be a good movie still to this day. And uh, you never know. So we shall see what happens with that. But thank you guys so much for tuning in this week, as always. And you guys know that I wouldn't be here without you. And uh, if you guys are interested in supporting the show, you can do so via Venmo with my username at Bill-Huffman-3. Or you can uh, leave a review wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I'm going to have a bunch of new shows coming up for you here in the new year and in the spring. And I look forward to uh, taking some deeper dives into some other cases. And thank you again so much to Jim and you guys, the listeners. I hope you guys continue to have a wonderful week. And as always, stay healthy and be safe. Twenty-four hours ago, I found out the person I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing; she'd invested three hundred thousand dollars with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real-life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins. 
convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh You go home and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done, and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found.